0: thing to know you're lost, like factually in your head, but it's a whole different thing to feel the sheer weight of being lost. I remember a couple times as a kid, probably some of you have experienced the getting lost in the grocery store thing. Um, I remember a couple times as a kid, one especially in Southern California, when I lost my mom in this humongous grocery store. And uh, I was probably about four or five years old because my brother uh, hadn't yet been born. And uh, I started just bawling. I just lost it. A little four or five-year-old because I felt like I didn't know what I was going to do with my life suddenly. I'm going to sit here in the grocery store and I'm going to die because I can't find my mom. That's the feeling of, of it as a four or five-year-old kid, you know. Uh, there was another time before the days of cell phone and GPS when I was uh, by myself driving back to seminary in Chicago, probably about 22, 23 years old, and uh, I came upon a bunch of traffic on the south side of Chicago, coming in on the Skyway in Gary, Indiana. You northerners know where I'm talking. I wanted to take the 90 instead of going the 80, 94, you know, and uh, represent Yankees. Um, I came upon a slew of traffic, and <laughs> I thought to myself, uh, I'm a mature 22-year-old man. I'll just get off this next exit up here, and uh, I'll go around all this annoying traffic, uh, which clearly was a terrible idea. Uh, because it only took about 30 seconds for me to get off that exit and feel like I have entered a vortex out of which I will never come. Because, because in that area there in Southside Chicago, it's not like the next exit's gonna be soon. Uh, you may, you may think there's gonna be one. You may even follow the highway and find yourself hopelessly lost for about an hour and a half or so, you know, maybe. Um. I learned some prayer at the time when I was driving through some neighborhoods there in the south side of Chicago. So I began to feel lost. I mean, I knew I was lost, but I began to feel lost. Nightfall came. I'm driving through neighborhoods where my prayer life suddenly is much better. Um, and And so I'm feeling the weight of that lostness. Which is to say that it's one thing to know you're lost, but what do you... What do you do when you don't even know if you're lost? Not just knowing it, not just feeling it, but what about not even knowing you're lost? Can you imagine going through life not knowing that you are lost? Which is to say, can you imagine going through life just blissfully unaware that God loves you and sent Jesus Christ to die for you so that you can know him? And have a forever relationship with him. That's lostness. Not even knowing. There's a preacher who tells a story of losing his son. At the Woodfield Mall in Chicago. Again, northerners. It was one time in 1973, the largest retail space in America. Humongous mall with almost 200 stores in it. And so when you lose your three-and-a-half-year-old son in a big place like that, you panic. He says this. He says, we split up, each taking an assigned location in the mall. Mine was actually the parking lot outside, and I'll never forget that night, he says, kicking through the newly fallen snow, calling out his name at the top of my lungs. He said, I felt like an abject fool, yet my concern for his safety outweighed all other feelings. So unsuccessful, I trudged back to our meeting point. My wife had not found him, I had not found him, nor had my mother found him. And then my dad appeared, holding little Matthew, three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew, by the hand. And our hearts leapt for joy. And he says this, interestingly enough, Matthew was totally unfazed, totally untraumatized. He hadn't been crying. To him, there had been no problem. To him, there had been no lostness. And he says, I asked my father where he found him. He said, the candy counter. He was at the candy counter. You should have seen him. His eyes just about as high as the candy. He held his little hands behind his back and moved his head back and forth looking at the candy, surveying all of his luscious options. He says, Matthew didn't even look lost. He didn't even know he was lost. He was oblivious to the phenomenal danger he was in. This he says, is a candy counterculture where people who don't look lost and don't know they're lost live for consumption. Which is to say, I think a lot of people are going through life like a three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew, aimlessly lost. This isn't just a Christian, non-Christian thing. I think this affects all. Little direction, little understanding of what this world is about. Little recognition that there is sin in their lives that keeps them from knowing God or that keeps them from knowing God as He's created them to know Him. And you know what the fix for that is? The fix for that is this. It's the Word of God. It's the truth of who God says we are. And why He says we exist. And what it is He has called us to do that is communicated to us in the Word of God. That is the fix to that problem of aimlessness, drifting, lostness, lack of direction, no focus, no sense of purpose, no sense of mission. we hear about this truth from the word of god and from people who know and have ingested the word of god so it's a part of their heart so that it's in their bones and it comes out their mouth and their behavior that's how we learn that's how we learn the word of god from those who have gone before us so the process begins with the truth of god that goes into us and then comes out of us Which means that apart from divine revelation, apart from God coming to reveal Himself to us in the Scriptures, can we really know anything in the world? Apart from the Bible, do we have any hope of understanding who we are, how we got here, what's gone wrong with us, and what God has done to address the problem? And in Revelation, what will become of the world? It doesn't take getting to the end of one's life to realize Hopefully you've realized this early on. The truth that we'll see in Revelation today is this, and this is the big idea. It's in your study notes there on the back of of the worship guide. It says, If God does not communicate with us, if God does not communicate with us, we are lost, adrift, uncertain, hopeless, and without purpose, significance, or any sense of meaning. Revelation to us in God's Word is necessary for life. Let me apply this through the grid of something that we've talked about a few times in Revelation. This is something that's in your study notes as well. I'm going to apply this through through these things we've been learning here. It says this in your study notes as well. The outpouring of God's wrath is meant to condemn everything else that you trust. The outpouring of God's wrath is meant to condemn everything else that you trust. God's judgment is actually his kindness in disguise. He uses it while we live to lead us to repentance and salvation. And God judges us so that he can save us. Now now think about that for a second. It says God judges us so that he can save us. That's deep stuff that we learn here in Revelation. And would you know that? Would you know that God's judgment is part and parcel of God saving you if you didn't have the word of God to tell you how to interpret what's going on in your life? I know I wouldn't. If you weren't reading through Revelation and didn't know the truth of Hebrews 12.10, for example, where it says that God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness, if that wasn't given to us in the Word, how would you interpret your suffering as an indication that you are God's child? You wouldn't. Would you know how to interpret your own suffering as an indication that you are God's child if you didn't have the Word of God and Revelation in Hebrews 12.10? By the way, every Scripture reference we're talking about today is listed in your study guide there. This is the kind of truth that's crucial for living the Christian life in meaningful kinds of ways. And you don't know how to live it appropriately if you aren't steeped in the Word of God. That's just the fact of the matter for us as we grow as believers. You don't know how to live the Christian life on your own if the Word of God and and, and the community of believers around us isn't there to help us learn and understand and become the filter for us that guides us as opposed to my life being the filter for how I read the Word of God. And that truth is given to us today in the 10th chapter of Revelation. Let's go ahead and read that together. Starting at verse 1 there, we'll see how we learn this truth about the role of the Word of God in this vision that is given to us in Revelation. If you'll remember the last two weeks, we looked at the first six trumpet judgments. And before the seventh trumpet is going to be blown at the end of chapter 11, there's this interlude of almost two chapters that we're beginning today. Here in chapter 10, there's a strong angel that's going to bring the scroll that was opened to John. And John's going to eat that scroll, as we'll see here. So we're seeing today in uh, Revelation 10, the beginning of this uh, two-chapter break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. There was also a break, by the way, between the sixth and the seventh seals earlier on. So this is telling that same story again. It's called recapitulation, if you want to look that up later on. Recapitulation is a good word for that. So go ahead and read along. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. It says this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring, When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The problem we're talking about today is basically this. (laughs) We don't know the story of God in his word like we must if it's going to feed us for life it's not hard it's not a hard lesson to understand it's a hard lesson to continue to learn to live to understand we'll see here in revelation 10 for example there are tons of cool things that John just he just knows he just has it in him And so he sees these visions, and he picks these things from these visions. Oh, that's like this in Ezekiel. Oh, that's like this in Genesis. Oh, like like that in Daniel. It's just a part and parcel of who he is. So he's interpreting what he sees based on his own knowledge of the Word of God, which is a model for us. That's a model for us. We often do the opposite. Let's see where we get this here. Jump back to verse 1, chapter 10. We're going to go straight up Bible. So you can leave here having learned something. And having trained your brain a little more about how to interpret God's truth as opposed to being well-versed at knowing what's cool on TV. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw another mighty angel. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse 1. Let me just tell you that now. Then I saw another mighty angel. This isn't the first mighty angel we've seen. We saw another one. In Revelation 5 in fact there are lots of links between Revelation 5 and Revelation 10 We can't go into all of them, but there are lots of links on purpose here between those two We saw this strong angel in chapter 5 verse 2 In the throne room of heaven where Jesus takes the scroll from God the Father's right hand But in comparison to that angel and most angels in Scripture and even in Revelation this angel is no ordinary angel at the beginning of chapter 10 This angel is described with attributes that are given only to God. And by the way, this is important for where we're headed with the message. We're going to be saying eventually here that every single one of us who is identified with Christ is commissioned like John is here to eat this book, to eat this scroll, which means that we are called, every one of us who follows Christ, from Christ himself to take the message of the word into our hearts so that we can take it into the world. That's where we're headed. Keep reading verse 1. It says that John saw this mighty angel coming down from heaven. So John is now on earth, and this angel is coming down from heaven. This isn't yet an attribute of God that he comes down from heaven because all angels do. But it does indicate that the authority of the message of this mighty angel comes from God. And this is obvious from the physical attributes of the angel which show up here. Keep reading verse 1. It says this mighty angel came down from heaven, and it lists four things that we want to focus on. Wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. In basic terms, one at a time, let's point out these these things here. Number one, it says that, that he was wrapped in a cloud, this mighty angel. This reminds us of the cloud in Exodus 13 and 19 and 24. If you're taking notes, those are also listed there in your study notes. This reminds us of the cloud in Exodus 13 and 19 and 24 that represented the presence of God at Mount Sinai. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments, the the law from God. And it also represents the cloud that led the people of Israel by day in the wilderness. In Scripture, God's presence is said to be in the cloud in numerous places that we're not even talking about here. Clouds are also used in Scripture, in the Bible, to describe the process of transporting God and even Christ to and from earth. They come to and from earth on a cloud that's only described of God in the Old Testament except for a couple little examples. Uh, We see what we're talking about here with this cloud thing in the following passages. These are listed in your study notes. Psalm 104.3, Daniel 7.13, Acts 9. Also in Revelation 14.14, we have already seen, it says John, uh, we're going to see, I'm sorry, uh, we're going to see in Revelation 14 that John says, there is a white cloud and sitting on that cloud, one like the Son of Man. So there's even uh, another example of the white cloud being attributed to divinity, uh, uh, the cloud being attributed to divinity. (laughs) It says nothing about it being white, does it? Second thing, it says, with a rainbow over his head. It says this mighty angel has a rainbow over his head. Now remember, John probably knows his scripture better than uh, probably all of us combined. Let's just speak frankly. Uh, John, who has written Revelation, he probably knows his scripture better than all of us combined. And he is seeing this vision of this mighty angel who has a rainbow over his head, and it reminds him of Ezekiel 126 to 28, Ezekiel 126 to 28. So he writes what he sees in Revelation in a way that fits with the scripture he already knows. Are you following how that works? By the way, that's a key to understanding the pictures and the imagery in Revelation. Knowing your scripture super well. John is so well versed in scripture that he interprets what he sees based on what he already knows from scripture. Anyway, when John sees this angel, he thinks, aha, this rainbow over the head is like the vision in Ezekiel. That first vision in Ezekiel is where he sees, where Ezekiel sees what's called a likeness with a human appearance In Ezekiel one twenty six. let me read from verse 28 in chapter 1. In Ezekiel it says, one twenty eight. like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, that's the Old Testament way of talking about the, the bow from Noah's Ark, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, which we know is a symbol of God's promise to provide salvation, to keep his promises, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. He says this, such as in other words, Like the appearance of the rainbow, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. It's very similar to what we see here in Revelation. Uh, The only other reference in New Testament to a rainbow, by the way, we've already seen in Revelation 4.3, where it says there was a rainbow that was around the throne. So there's always already a precedent in, in Revelation for the rainbow being associated with divinity alone. It says his face was like the sun. That phrase is almost identical to the phrase found in Revelation 1:16, where it describes Christ by saying his appearance is as the sun. And in fact, it exactly reproduces the phrase that describes Christ's transfigured appearance. This is after His resurrection. His transfigured appearance in Matthew 17 where it says His face shone like the sun. If you want to look even deeper, you can look up Daniel 10-12 through where John uses that model of the coming of one like a son of man as the mental grid for what he sees in Revelation. We're building a case here that this is more than just a mighty angel. We're building a case for this being something that is more than just a mighty angel. The last one there is his legs are like pillars of fire. That's the fourth attribute of this uh, mighty angel. His legs were like pillars of fire. Uh, John mixes together a couple pictures uh, from Revelation 1.15, which he's already obviously seen. And Daniel ten verse six, in a way that is meant to make us think again, as with the cloud, to think again to remind us of the presence of God with Israel in the wilderness, where God appeared in a pillar of fire to protect and to guide his people. It also reminds us of Exodus 13.22 there. This mighty angel is what is called a few times in Scripture, the angel angel. Of God. Sometimes it shows up as the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. I'm sorry, the Old Testament. Uh, probably more frequently, actually, as the angel of the Lord instead of the angel of God. This angel um, is probably some type of post-incarnate Christophany. That's a fancy word. We don't have this in your study notes, but I'll tell you what it is. Christophany, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, Christ-O-P-H-A-N-Y. That's a fancy word that just means a non-physical appearance of Christ. A Christophany is not Christ in the flesh as he was while he was on earth, but it's a primarily spiritual appearance because Christ showed up before he came to earth as the angel of the Lord in various places. I'll tell you about a couple in just a second. And he also showed up a couple places in the New Testament, uh, including this one. So I think that this mighty angel is more than just your regular old angel. The reasons I've noted, and a couple more I'll tell you here. A Christophany means that that the appearance of Christ shows up in our lives, in history, in a time different than he actually was on earth. So what that means is that God can do things physically that we cannot. So don't assume that that can't happen, because you don't want to impose your ability not to fly on, uh, on God. You don't want to impose your own ability to not be able to go through walls on Christ. Now, we have evidence that he could do crazy things like that. There are plenty of Christophanies in Scripture. We've already seen one in Revelation 1, in fact. If you look back at the risen Christ description in Revelation one12 to 8, that's actually a Christophany when John saw the risen Christ. Some have suggested there might have even been one at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. In other words, they they heard rustling of leaves perhaps or something that was the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So much so that they hid themselves from His presence. In Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord, as a phrase first shows up, 16, 7 through 14, we see a famous one in Genesis 32, 22 to 31, when Jacob wrestles with an angelic appearance of Christ. We see it in Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. There are others, but there are just a few to get you started uh, if you want to check out the veracity of what I'm telling you. So why all this emphasis? on verse 1, and on this angel being an appearance of Christ. I think because it tells us that if we will have eyes of faith, we will increasingly see, and this is a lesson from the book of Revelation, if we will look with eyes of faith, we will increasingly see that we live in a world where the presence of Christ is already palpably available to us. And something into which we can tap as a present power and reality for our lives. And that tapping into that present power and reality for our lives requires being in this. (coughs) Requires the truth of the Word of God being in our hearts and a part of our bones. And by the way, even if you think this is just simply a regular old boring angel, the same thing holds true. Okay, we've got to get moving. Verse 2 says, He, meaning the spiritual manifestation of Christ, or the mighty angel with very divine features, he had a little scroll open in his hand. It was so little that John could handle it, unlike chapter 5, where the scroll in the throne room was only able to be handled by God and Christ. And now, so so this is super cool because unlike chapter 5, where it was closed, now it is open. What was hidden is now revealed so that John can do something with it. Also, unlike chapter 5, which happens in heaven, this happens on earth. In chapter 5, only the Lamb standing as though slain was worthy to open the seals on the scroll, but now the scroll is accessible on earth. And John is able to handle it and to look at its contents. That's huge. John is able to handle it and to look into its contents. Which is part of why I personally think everything up to the seventh trumpet is already happening. But I digress. Keep reading. Verse of middle two. Uh, Middle of verse two. He says, And he, again the amazingly Christ-like angel, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This indicates that he has authority over all of the earth, sea, and land. That's an indication of divine power. In Scripture, when just the sea and the land are referenced, without dividing it up into things like mountains and and rivers and things like that, when just the sea and the land are referenced, it means the totality of God's creation. So, So him having his feet, his legs on either one of those Shows divine power and authority over the whole creation. You can look that up in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, and Jonah, listed there in the study notes. He called out, verse three. He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. This is another reference to a Christ-like attribute of sovereignty, Lion of Judah. Uh, John's also making reference to Revelation 5:5 5, 5 and Amos 3:8, which are listed there in your study notes. When it says, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Uh, in Revelation and other places of Scripture, thunder is associated with the voice and the power of God. Uh, Exodus 19, 16-19 talks about that if you want to. And that's another example of, of John grabbing all these things from other places in Scripture that he just, he just intuitively knows. It says this, though, verse 4. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven, this is probably the voice of God, the Father, saying, seal up what the seven thunders... Have said, and do not write it down. Simply put, uh, we're not able to handle all of the truth of God. Certainly not now. And I believe we will never get to the bottom of who God is, even in eternity. I think for the rest of eternity, we will continue to just discover new and cool things about Him as infinite, holy, and perfect God. So keep reading verse 5. What we see here is that this angelic presence, this angelic presence of Christ Himself, makes an oath that reveals how history, how redemptive history ends. It says this, verse five, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land—that phrase is repeated three times here—that that the angel standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven. That's the oath, the same kind of gesture we might use when we say, you know, "I, I promise, hand to God, I promise. Uh, Same kind of oath. It says the Christ-like angel raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Look at Deuteronomy uh, 32 there later on. Uh, John has that in view here when he's talking about that. It says he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, And it says that there would be no more delay. In other words, God's promise to finish His judgment against sin is coming soon. Verse 7, but that in the days, notice it says, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. It doesn't say at the moment of the trumpet call. In fact, it says in the days of the trumpet call. This means that the sounding of the trumpet is a span of time and not one distinct act. So in those days, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as He announced to His servants, the prophets. The word there for announced, if you're a note taker, you may want to circle that. That word her, for announced in verse 7 is the word euangidzalo, which is the same word that we know as gospel.
1: This is the verb
0: form of that noun for good news, for gospel. So what that means is that the mystery of God was already gospeled. It was already announced as good news to the prophets. Which means, friends, that this is our hope. Nothing else, nothing from your life that is the filter through which you live it, but this hope learned from the truth of the word that God who created the world will bring to pass everything he has announced. This appearance of Christ in the form of an angel has just sworn by God that all will be finished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. God has revealed what He will do and here's the crux for us. This revealing of what He will do is the true story of the world and for your life. This revealing is the true story of the world and your life finds meaning and significance only in the context of this story. Of the story of God. Our lives find meaning and significance only in the context of the story of God. I think a lot of us go through life trying to fit Jesus into our lives, which is the wrong direction. That's backwards. It's living like, it's living like you made you. And like you're the creator of the universe instead of trying to fit Jesus into our lives, we need to be so familiar with God's work, like what we see John doing in Revelation. So familiar with God's work in the world, that we filter, like He does, everything we see through God's story. And where do we learn that story? if it's not going to be in the revealed Word of God, which often sits in our cars and on our dressers as monuments to our rebellion against finding our meaning only in the context of His story. Verse 8 says this, and the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again. Probably God the Father again. Saying, go take the scroll. Go get that scroll because I'm going to tell you something to do with it. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So, obediently, I went to the angel And told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. We don't have time to look at this, but this is a parallel to Ezekiel 2.8 through 3.3. If you want to look that up later, Ezekiel 2 8 through 3 3. This is a place in the Old Testament where Ezekiel is asked to do the same thing we see John being asked to do here. Ezekiel 3 1 says, Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Ezekiel was a prophet, and this was part of his first vision. And he was told to to eat the scroll, and to go speak to the house of Israel. Which is a figurative way of simply saying, ingest, digest, get this into your bones, make this what shapes your mind and your heart first. For Ezekiel, it was a direct command to do something, not just to have intake. It says, eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And we see the same phenomenon here in Revelation with John. Because John is called here to communicate not to the people of Israel, but to the church, to us. Verse 10 says this, John speaking, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What's going on here is that the prophet John is being commissioned by God to take in the message, the good news of God's story, to eat it and to digest it. And even though it will be both hard and wonderful bitter and sweet. He is called to then deliver it to the people of God. So I just simply want to ask, are you you eating this book so that the truth becomes part of you? Are you in the Word so that you filter your whole life through it? Or are there so many competing sources of alternative stories and of truths and sources of authority out there in your life that guide you that you cannot say, yes, this is the filter for everything in my life. There's a story that's told about uh, the famous missionary David Livingston. Uh, when he started his trek across Africa, he had 73 books in three packs that weighed 180 pounds. And after he traveled about 300 miles with all of those books, he began to throw away some of those books a little bit along the way, of course, because of the fatigue of having to carry around all of that baggage. It was keeping him from moving forward. As he continued on his journey, of course, his library grew grew less and less until he had. But one book left, of course, it was the Bible. We see in Revelation a model for us that the authoritative truth of God given to us in His Word is revealed to us so that we will know who we are and why we exist. At what point in our journeys will we begin to realize the truth that we've been carrying too many other books or sources of authority in our lives? At what, point, at what point will this truth about who God says we are be what informs us to be the filter for everything that we see in the world around us and in our lives?